2: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writer's Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Darren Lewis, the newly appointed assistant editor of the Daily Mirror, and by Art De Rocher of Football.London. Gents, let's grasp the nettle straight away. I'm sure, like me, you fell in love with the game as a kid. Football has been good to us, personally and professionally. How then have we reached the point where we're wondering whether it's worth the effort? in my view at least, the new handball law is killing the game. It's a farce that's alienating fans, players, managers and even referees. It's distorting results. Darren, it's got to be scrapped, hasn't it?
1: I think uh, what we're seeing is a trickle that will turn into a flood and will almost certainly lead to it being scrapped. Just as VAR was adapted and conversations were had after the controversies last season i think this handball law will cause a similar effect because right now we are seeing games wrecked points lost managers having to bite their tongue so hard that they're bleeding instead of being able to criticize what are horrendous decisions spoiling the enjoyment of the game for all of us here on this pod and for all of the people listening and for the wider world
3: yeah
2: so ah oh. My point really is that it's beginning to distort the game itself. Now, put yourself in a position of a coach in a training ground this morning or for the rest of this week. Are you telling your players, look, there's a wall there, hit it at the wall, hope someone panics, get the handball. If you get a chance, aim for the hand. Are you trying to do
3: that? I don't think coaches will... Deliberately go and coach their players to do that. I think it'd be more of a subconscious thing in the players' minds to maybe try and aim for a hand. I think when you look at the Joel Ward incident, for instance, his hand, is, i don't know what else he can do with his hand—and <sighs> the balls just happened to hit, and it's resulted in a penalty. So I think players will uh, catch on to that the same way they kind of did with diving, in a way, and that's probably going to have an effect on the game in the in the short term, anyway. I think in terms of the bigger picture, the way it kind of changes the game as well is if you look at rugby a few years ago with the way they changed their tackling laws so people were forced to tackle a bit uh, lower. That led to more um, high tackles being given as uh, fouls and the way that changed the coaching of the game also meant that players who were already professionals were having to relearn the game and I don't think... That's something that should be forced upon players who are maybe halfway through their careers already and they've got to learn a completely... Well, not completely different way to play, but they've got to adapt to changes where it's not natural to them or it's not something that should be in the game for a long-term basis.
2: Mm, I think we've got to call out David Ellery on this, Darren. You know, okay, maybe going over the top to call him an enemy of football because I'm sure he's he's got the right motives behind him, but he and his committee at AFAB have been tinkering with the laws for too long. Mm. And you know, what people are looking for is is consistency and probably simplicity. Is a quote from Roy Hodgson and I like your comments on this, please. Mm. Roy said for me, handballs are very simple rule. When you deliberately handle it to stop a goal being scored or to get an advantage, it's handball. And when the ball hits you and you can do nothing about it, it's not handball. That's not rocket science, is it? Not in the slightest.
1: And, you know, the only thing that annoyed me at the weekend is that, and this is a problem with football generally, is that we don't tend to get the scrutiny on the big issues until they affect a big club. But when it's just a West Brom, a a Crystal Palace, a smaller club, it, it makes a few column inches, but there isn't the widespread condemnation that there was after it happened to Tottenham and Jose Mourinho. But it started with Roy at the weekend and he was absolutely right because the law now looks at the ball striking the arm or the hand. It doesn't look at the context. It doesn't look at whether your back is to the ball, whether they're deflections or ricochets or... The kind of thing that we saw with Eric Dyer. ironically, as he's looking away, he's not even looking at the ball. There is no intention from Eric Dyer to handle the ball. And the way to correct this whole mess is by looking to penalise deliberate handball. If it's deliberate, you penalise it. It's so simple, as you say. It's not rocket science at all. But the problem that we have with football in general and the laws is that we have a group of people who have... It's almost as if, you know, they throw a ball at a wall every day and then think, well, justifies our exist." I know. Let's do this. Let's do that. And they come up with some new ways to take football, in their opinion, into the 21st century when, in fact, they're taking it back into the Dark Ages.
2: Yeah, well, David Ellery is certainly a disciplinary dinosaur. And I suppose you can take the schoolmaster out of Harrow School, but you can't take Harrow School out of I, the... I, I, uh, I, I must, r- I, I've must.
1: i got to just add to that. I, I, I add to what you're saying, because I know referees who have the same opinion as you of David Ellery. You know, David Ellery is a guy who's effectively, he's a schoolmaster who is very unflexible, very unwilling to listen to the people around the game whose ideas in many cases are better than his but he is somebody who rules by decree if you like and i think from his perspective of officiating football in the 90s the game has left him behind and it almost, from this, seems as though maybe it needs somebody else to be in charge of being able to, to, to deal with and accommodate the people who operate with operate within the game instead of him. I, I can't, I just, I, I have no real time for the idea that David Ellery right now is the right person to be uh, in the position he is.
2: Well, he's certainly achieved The near impossible, hasn't he, Art? He's he's made Jose Mourinho a a sympathetic figure. I thought it was really quite pertinent when, you know, he was obviously going to be asked about that in the post-match interview. And it was, well, you know, if I want to give money away, I'll give it to charity. I won't give it to the FA. Again, we go back to the, uh, the basic lack of freedom of expression sometimes with managers. You know, it was interesting, wasn't it, also, that Steve Bruce in six separate post-match interviews agreed the whole thing was a nonsense.
3: Yeah, I think that was the big one for me. The one you just mentioned, Steve Bruce actually agreeing with it because it's one thing for the manager that's taken the the rough decision to call it out. I think it's another thing for the opposition manager, manager to actually agree with that and not just agree with it, but publicly state his opinions on it. And I think yeah with what happened there Eric Dyer is not even in control of his arm I don't think and that's where the phrase ball to hand literally comes into play because that's that's a phrase you learn as a kid when you're like seven eight years old <laughs> you you know that if if you have nothing to help the ball hit in your hand it's not a handball with Eric Dyer, that's the case and and I think Jose Mourinho was right to be as furious as he was and then Steve Bruce was, was, of course, right to back him up in his post-match interviews as well. And I think that is that is probably the biggest takeaway I, I took from that whole instant. Just Steve Bruce being so supportive of Jose Mourinho in that situation. Can I just mm. back up that point? You
1: know, Steve Bruce did six interviews after the game. In each of those interviews, he made the same point. And it was quite key, Mike, because... It could happen to Spurs today. It could happen to Arsenal tomorrow. It could happen to Man United today. It could happen to Man City tomorrow. And if you're listening to this, or if you've watched a game at the weekend, and you're kind of laughing at someone else's misfortune, the law, the the, the, the laws of the game at the moment, particularly around these two issues, VAR, of, they are so arbitrary. It could happen to you on any given match day, and so. I love the fact that Steve Bruce showed that empathy with Jose Mourinho because it's vital that football comes together to 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 get rid of this rule and to to get back to some semblance of common sense and normality. Otherwise, it will wreck it for all of us. Yeah, here,
2: here. Art oh, was Jose also right to complain about their frankly ludicrous fixture list. You know, they're at home to Chelsea. On Tuesday, They're at home to Maccabee Haifa on Thursday. And, well, oh, there's a little matter of a Premier League match at Man United on Sunday. You know, we've already got to the stage where there was an injury substitution with uh, Son yesterday. It's going to really impact on that team and therefore shape its season, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think he's well within his right to, for lack of a better word, complain about it because when you look at the way just a couple of seasons ago when Ajax had their Champions League run and the Dutch FA rescheduled games around that time for them to prepare better for their Champions League run you see that it's not an impossible thing to ask for when it's being done in other countries I think Jose Mourinho probably Jose Mourinho and Tottenham sorry uh, could have the same Kind of treatment in terms of protecting their players in what is already such a, a condensed fixture period with uh, the way last season ended and then uh, moving straight into this season in a matter of six weeks or so. So I think there's definitely a case for him to complain with such a tight turnaround of games and such a, I wouldn't say a small squad, but it's a squad that's not as in depth as others. And that's where. Possibly, if you're arguing against it, is where Tottenham maybe could have prepared a little better for this season with uh, a few more bodies in, uh, in from the transfer window. But then again, it's the players that Jose Mourinho trusts and to protect them in the best way possible, I think he has a right to... To demand a bit more protection from his own FA, mm,
2: yeah, agree with that. And I think we should also expect Daniel Levy to come up with his usual last-minute supermarket sweep in the next few days. It's a small sample size, Darren. You know, only a couple, two or three matches into the Premier League season. But let's look at it. Chelsea, they drew at the weekend. Manchester United, they won, thanks to, you know, a frankly ludicrous <laughs> scenario. Manchester City lost badly to Leicester. Okay, it's early, but is it clear that there are fundamental problems at all those three big clubs?
1: Well, with Manchester City, I'll I'll start with them because I remember I may have come onto your show when we were talking about the potential of Messi coming to this country. Mm. And I remember at the time saying that I was in a minority, possibly even of one, because I, I wasn't that enthralled with the prospect of spending such a grotesque amount of money on a 33-year-old footballer, even though I am probably first in line in terms of his fan club. But I, and in a football context, if you look at City, they scored four or more goals on 11 time, occasions last season, but they didn't have a, a right-footed centre-half who could head the ball. And they certainly didn't have anyone of the calibre of a Virgil van Dijk or even a Vincent Kompany when he was at the club. And clearly there are other issues as well because some of their players are self-isolating, a couple are injured. And there are many, there'll be many people who don't have sympathy for City. I do have sympathy for them because some of the problems are beyond their control. They're agreeing a deal for Diaz, the centre-half who should be here later this week. But the bottom line is that for a club with so much money, it's remarkable that City are in a position where their squad is just not strong enough right now to live with Liverpool and I could not believe at the start of this season that there were so many people willing to write off a team in Liverpool that had won the title by a street and revert to backing City purely because they've got all the money. City as a team have got problems in a number of areas actually that for me suggests that although they've got an outstanding forward line uh, and front six, and even though Aguero's not available, you've still got Jesus, who's decent, even though he's not top class. But at the back, they're just so weak. And the manner of Leicester's victory yesterday was frightening. And right now, if you are a rival team, it is the best time to play in Manchester City. Mm. Fill your boots while you can, because that... Defense. That back five is. I, don't know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't include Edison. He's still a world class goalkeeper. But I. I think that the back four are all over the place at the moment. No understanding. No leadership. No organisation. No discipline. And you could see why. After haggling for quite some time over Diaz, I mean, last week I think City were briefing that they hadn't made a bid for him at all. Uh, three days later, <laughs> they've agreed a deal.
2: <laughs> Funny that, isn't it? <laughs>
1: So, yeah, listen, I I think it's the right time to play them. The other clubs, we know what the problems are. Just to be very brief, Mike, Chelsea, although they've got Mendy, they haven't played him yet because they just have that lack of organisation in the back. I have no idea why Rudiger is not surplus to requirements, but my understanding is that Lampard doesn't want him anymore. And uh, if you look at Manchester United... Harry Maguire's leaden footed, Victor Lindelhoff is all over the place. If you've got any pace, any kind of ingenuity, and any kind of will to get in behind, you can get you can, you can destabilize all three of those sides right now. I think Liverpool must be laughing and Arsenal, who haven't spent anywhere near as much money as some of the other clubs, they look so much more organised. Art will tell you better than I can, but it just underscores the job that Arteta is doing at
2: the club. Yeah, we'll talk about Arsenal a little later, Art. I just want you, if I may, please, to look at Chelsea. Now, they spent £232 million. Have they spent that basically on style over substance? Because, you know, you've got Alonso, who's probably unplayable in the worst sense of the word, a bit like Kepper. They probably won't get any value if they have a fire sale of players. What sort of leash is Frank Lampard on? Is it quite a short one?
3: I wouldn't be tempted to say it was a short one just because, not only because he's a club legend, but because the way he came in last season, it seemed like Chelsea were willing to give him time. I know historically that's not been the case, but when you look at the kind of project that was being built with the transfer ban and the way he was nurturing that young team, it felt much more positive than with previous managers. And I think going into this season they probably felt that with everything that's happened since uh, March, with the lockdown and everything, that's probably going to have an impact as well. Where he probably won't have as much sympathy is, of course, how much money Chelsea have spent this summer and the fact that it's pretty much all been on flair players like Havertz, Ziyech and Werner's not really a flair player, but a more attacking talent. So when you're looking at their recruitment, it's not been totally... In positions where they've needed to recruit, yes, they've brought in Mendy for the goalkeeping position. But then you have still got to look at centre back. Yes, Thiago Silva's in, but it's a thirty six year old. It's a thirty six year old uh, centre back. It's not. It's not going to be a player you're going to rely on for an entire season, even if he does bring more quality in terms of experience and leadership in that area. I think that's probably a signing that's going to be one where he he's more of an off-pitch influence than an on-pitch one. So yeah, I think that's where Lampard's probably going to have most of his questions to answer. But I don't think Chelsea should cut their losses with him as soon as they can. I think with anyone, he's probably the man to trust a little more than they have done with previous managers Uh, Not solely because of his time at the club as a player, but because last season he did manage to get them in the Champions League, which I don't think many people would have predicted at the start of that season. So I think he's proven in some ways that he can push this Chelsea side forward. And with the challenges that have come with this post-COVID, well, not post-COVID totally yet, but um, post-lockdown, I'd say, era, he should be given a bit more of a chance to continue to prove himself.
2: Yeah, I suppose he's no longer protected by the feel-good factor of having giving you know, given academy uh, kids their, their heads. And I suppose also, Darren, is it understandable that uh, Frank Lampard you know doesn't seem to know what his best team is yet? He's still working out what jigsaw puzzle he's got in front of him.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Personally, I think that for all the talent that he bought during the summer... I would have gone with a more settled style to start the season and then maybe integrate individual players gradually off the bench, maybe last 10, 15 minutes of games and then uh, encourage them to fight for their places rather than fielding a group of guys who have still got to play together. When you think about the truncated pre-season program and all of the problems that we had during the summer, he simply didn't, have time to bed a new team in and in answer to your question and I think a lot of clubs, if you look at the the pattern of some of the results, the results that you normally would get during a Christmas period you know they they're this results that scream players not fit tired legs all that sort of thing and personally, I think that is the strategic mistake that Lampard made with his side that said on the flip side. I, I do just want to talk, because I know we've talked about this before in the context of Robert Anker and other things. I think Lampard's handling of the Kepa situation is deserves particular mention because uh, before he's a footballer, he's a man with a family and friends and whatever else. And he clearly is suffering from a crisis of confidence. And I'm glad after the game the other night that Lampard didn't prioritise the points over the being of the player and he talked about the club wanting to protect Kepper and that even though he had bought Mendy you know they would be looking to kind of just throw a bit of a protective shield around him uh, he's not a bad keeper i think the pressure of the price tag weighed quite heavily on him and you know hopefully going forward he'll get back to the player that he was but i think maybe hope even more importantly Hopefully, Chelsea may have just set a little bit of a standard for us in terms of the well being of the footballers under whom so much rests on a weekly basis and are even more now under the microscope with social media and all that sort of thing. I've I no idea why they go into dressing rooms and look straight away at their phones, but you know, when they do, they find themselves in a world of mental stress and torture so it was good to see a club protect a player in the way that chelsea did the other day
2: yeah yeah i think yeah, you know, we, we forget i mean we're dealing with flesh and blood here uh, mm. you know they're not widgets on that point uh, just sort of butting into this conversation about those three top clubs are uh, just want to bring up the case of Neko williams who's being you know criminally abused by a section of the liverpool fan base are we in the media falling down on the job here. Is it time for us to become more strident in calling out these louts? Because, you know, the the poor lad's had to withdraw. He, he's basically cancelled all his um, platforms. Through no fault of his own, he's a young player learning the game. And I, I found it astonishing how much stick he took.
3: What about you, Al? When you look at the way fans react on social media, Twitter in particular, I'd say, the expectations... I think have become very unrealistic in terms of what they may expect every touch from every player to be perfect, no matter what stage of their career they're in, even even if it is a more senior player, they may not be in the perfect condition, but every touch is expected to be perfect. Every, every shot is expected to at least test the keeper. And I think what is the problem is that fans are becoming a bit too spoilt with the product that they've been given in the Premier League but that's not just being fueled by great players in the Premier League but also how they view football a lot of football fans growing up now may also be playing video games like FIFA or Football Manager where everything well not everything but a lot of the times they can create perfect scenarios for themselves and I don't think that it can be translated into a real football match and that's where you're seeing overreactions like this where a player is forced to black out his social media pages which isn't something that should be happening at 19 or any other age so that is something that i think in terms of the way the media cover it i think what may what is also kind of maybe helping people within the media kind of see the change of atmosphere I guess on social medias the way the transfer market works as well because whenever (laughs) you see it with every top club I guess every tweet they send there's a thousand there's thousands of tweets in the replies telling them to announce a certain player whether it be Thiago at Liverpool or any other big player that they're interested in and those expectations are again quite unrealistic even if a club is in for a player having people reply to every single tweet telling you to announce a player isn't something that's gonna reap rewards and I don't think any of that helps any party in in these situations so I think the way that it's being looked at is changing and but the main thing I I think is that expectations over the years have become higher while the standard of football has remained the same. And I think that's where fans may become frustrated, rightly or wrongly so. And then those frustrations now have a bigger platform to be expressed. So that's where...
1: Oh, oh do, do Arsenal players get that?
3: Young, young Arsenal yep. players? Yep, yep. Without a doubt. <laughs> he may be in a, a good, rich of form at the minute, but Eddie and K Ke- got quite a bit of that last season when he came back into the side. Same with Lacazette, actually. Lacazette probably is the Arsenal player that gets that the most. When he was on his goal drought last season, about two months without scoring, but I think what was forgotten was the ankle injury he sustained in the Emirates Cup, which then flared up again a couple of months later. And then he was straight back into the team, which if you're dealing with that physically at the point of your career that he was at, he was 29, 28 at the time, turned 29 in May. And you're having to deal with a recurring ankle injury. I don't think that's something anyone would want to do. And I think that's where the grey area in these types of situations that is being missed. And we're seeing that with what's happened with Williams in the past week or so.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it's something that needs to be done, whether or not it's you know, withdrawing season tickets or by clubs, if if that is possible to identify the abuser. But they're you know, usually cowards, and they are just hiding behind, you know, emojis or uh, a whole long line of uh, of numbers. I suppose we're talking about here, Darren, perspective, aren't we? Manchester United, uh, they were desperate, I thought, at Brighton, but to be fair to Olegan Solskjaer. He's said that look, we're about three or four weeks behind here, and it will take that time for the for the team to actually produce optimal performances. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, that it will take time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. I I listen, we are we started a season in the midst of a pandemic with a determination to get games completed by any means necessary and as a result we we are these are unusual circumstances you know we've had players self-isolating we've got players who have been unfit we've got players who've got concerns over the real world and the more sensible issues around family and friends and you know we've got some players who mentally might not be in the right frame of mind to play there are all sorts of things considerations that we have to take into account and so it is going to take a bit of time for clubs to settle into a, a rhythm. If you look at Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, rather. Liverpool uh, lost one game on the way to winning the title last season. And Virgil van Dijk had made one mistake in 154 Premier League games. After the Le- Leeds game, he'd made two in four and you know there is that kind of that they're not quite there yet Liverpool as a club you know you wouldn't have thought that they would concede three goals against loony promoted Leeds. and I think there are a lot of clubs who are undercooked at the moment I suppose the one that does look okay is Arsenal but even they against West Ham looked very rocky indeed and um, they were as fortunate to win as Boris Johnson is to be Prime Minister I mean I think it was just a, a performance I, I was at the game And the midfielder Thomas Suchek hit the crossbar a few minutes before they went on to score the winner. A lot of the clubs are undercooked. I think that this is going to be a pattern that continues, maybe even beyond the international break, because you know players having not been undercooked are going to have those demands placed on them again and this is what Pep Guardiola was talking about the other day when he said look players aren't fit players are suffering and then they're going to be called up by their countries and the problem that we have in a wider context is that everybody defends their position the premier league the fa the fa's of the countries all around the, all around the world everybody protects their position and the victims right now are indeed the players
2: yeah, let's, let's look at Arsenal, Art. you know, Obviously, it's your area of expertise or special expertise. They're at Anfield tonight on Monday. They're back there on Thursday in the Carabao Cup, of which more later. Klopp has made a point of praising Arteta in the build-up. Is that more than the usual courtesies? And as you follow him so closely, give us your progress
3: report, please. I think in terms of Klopp, it may go further than the normal courtesy because he highlighted specific areas where he was impressed by Mikel Arteta, For instance, the way Arsenal def- defend off the ball, their shape is something that caused Liverpool problems at the Emirates and uh, in the community shield, but has done so with teams like Chelsea and Manchester Chester City beforehand. In terms of a progress report, I'd say... Steady progress has being made by Mikel so far this season because when you look at um, the way Arsenal returned to football after the restart, even though the move to the back three was very key to their progress in the FA Cup and, of course, since what's happened beyond then, I think the way he's dealt with squad management in games has improved because when you look at those games before uh, the end of last season substitutions was an area where he was maybe struggling a bit more than uh, most with having to deal with the timings and, and stuff like that but with with it being reduced back to free substitutes in the game i think uh, one thing he's done particularly well is make his players want to impress him So we've seen that with the way Nicolas Pepe has played, even though his only start has come in the Carabao Cup when he's played in the Premier League. He has looked to come on and make an impact. And that's been the same with Eddie as Darren saw in the West Ham game. He came on to score a winner, but was also very active when he came on making darting runs in behind the West Ham defence. So I think that's an area where Arteta has probably improved most is... Managing the side within games and trying to get the most, the absolute most out of every player that's in the in the matchday squad or eighteen players.
2: You look at that back four in particular. Or is it is it a three and a two wing backs? The person that has most impressed me. Okay, he's had his injury issues. Is Kieran Tierney Art? Is he a key player for them? And looking at the broader area of team development at Arsenal. Is it pivotal that they get Hussam Awar over the line from Neil?
3: So in regards to Kieran Tierney, I'd say he's, he's very key to the jigsaw, I guess you'd call it. Arsenal do play with a back three on paper. I'd say on paper because even though he is the, the third centre-back, I guess you'd call him, the way Arsenal play up that left-hand side, he often finds himself on almost on the touchline as a normal left-back. And then Ainsley, Maitland-Niles or Bikai Osaka, whichever one is playing left wing-back, often drifts into more central areas, which I don't think most would expect when looking at the team sheet on paper. You wouldn't really expect the wing-back to be playing almost as a third central midfielder. So that's where the patterns of play that Arteta has created down those sides come into play. And Kieran Tierney is very key to that because not only is he composed in defence, but he's also a very good passer of the ball and understands what is uh, expected of, of of him in that area. Going forward, whether he keeps that position for the entire season, I'm not 100% sure, especially with Gabriel magal coming in and uh, Pablo Mari coming back into fitness in the, in the coming weeks as well as Mustafi as well. In terms of our, I think, That one is one that will excite Mikel Arteta as well as Arsenal fans very much because uh, when you look at the problems that Arsenal had last season, especially when they moved to the 3-4-3 system, I guess you'd call it, is moving from the middle third of the pitch into the final third. uh, When teams decided to sit back, they had real issues trying to break down teams and that was, I think, seen most... Blatantly in the loss at Aston Villa at Villa Park with Hausam Hour. I think he's a player that is supreme technically, is an amazing dribbler with the ball, and is somebody that can unlock defenses but also carries a goal threat himself. Where I think he'd probably fit best is maybe with if he does sign eventually, that may see Arteta move to back four with a three-man midfield. Obviously, Granite Shack has been one of Arteta's key men in uh, in a more deeper, uh, restrained role where he's pulling the strings a bit more. Then, so he may move a bit more central to bring our into that left handed space where he'll link up with Kieran Tierney, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Saka, Pierre M'Kaba, Bamiyang to create better chances and more chances in open play. And I think that's where he'll have a real impact in Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. And I think he he would be one of the core players in that team.
2: Yeah. You know, Arsenal, Darren, are going to be back at um, Anfield on Thursday, as I mentioned, in the Carabao Cup. That's probably typical of what, on the face of it, is a a series of enticing midweek fixtures. But we all know it's going to be the usual hybrid teams, don't we? And... It just leaves me asking, what is the point of the Caribbean Cup?
1: Uh, Money at the moment. I think these are commercial... But there's,
2: there's no prize money until the semi-finals, Darren.
1: Well, quite. But I think as far as commercial contracts are concerned... You know, I, I, they, that that is the only thing that keeps it going. The smaller clubs, they want it. But, you know, at the moment, <laughs> it's not really helping them. The bigger clubs, it's a, a, a nuisance to them. But it, what it does do for the bigger clubs is give them a chance to give squad players a run out. So as you say, we'll see the hybrid teams and it's really incumbent on those players to keep being successful because otherwise they won't play any other football throughout the winter uh, unless it's off the bench. But I, I do see a point. The thing is, for me, I, I like to see the cup competitions because we, we still have this obsession in this country with the big clubs and the smaller clubs. We're not that fussed anything that happens in relate to a smaller club doesn't generate the column inches in our papers doesn't really don't don't generate the attention on our televisions isn't they don't get the spotlight and i think that the league the, the cup competitions the league cup the fa cup gives us the opportunity to showcase those abilities and to have an eye on the players who otherwise wouldn't get the attention unless they were to move to a big club and i think you know, it speaks to a wider conversation about the current crisis in the lower leagues that just isn't getting the the attention, the scrutiny that it demands, not just in relation to the money, but also the coronavirus situation down there with clubs sort of walking around. Listen, if it were not for Spurs, Mike, paying for Leyton Orient to have their coronavirus tests we would not know, we would not have known that up to 17 players had tested positive for the virus. Putting at risk the three teams that they'd played previously, putting at risk Spurs. David Sullivan, I know he's, you're no fan, Mike, so <laughs> just, just uh, hold your horses for a second. But, but he said the other day, he did have a point when he said the other day, Premier League teams are being exposed to teams in the EFL who are not testing. And the EFL doesn't have a mandatory testing programme. So there are all sorts of issues down there that kind of underscore the fact that the clubs in the lower league don't get the spotlight, the scrutiny, the attention that they should do. And if we get rid of the cup competitions, that's another step towards suggesting on the one hand that we care about them, but actually on the other hand, basically pushing them a little bit further away into the darkness.
2: Yeah, well, we d- we did discuss that issue on the last edition of the of the podcast, and I think quite rightly, you know, we gave the PFA a bit of stick because I think it's their responsibility to, f- to fund those fund those Absolutely. type of tests. Absolutely. On 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 that sort of issue, art, uh, I suppose the Carabao Cup, League Cup, whatever you want to call it, is a bit of a relic of the past when bigger clubs had greater affinity with smaller clubs. Do you think it was significant, Darren mentioned the late Orient situation there, that the only evidence of a bond at the moment is between fans? You know, Spurs fans bought £50,000 worth of merchandise from the late Orient club shop after that cancellation due to the positive tests. I thought that was, and we talked earlier on about how poisonous fan relations can be, I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant example of solidarity.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably the prime example at the minute when football needed it most, I'd say, of fans really banding together to help clubs. And I think you see that probably more so with EFL clubs at the minute. You look at um, everything that Charlton Athletic have been going through and you see how their fans have reacted and you see the way football has come together to help Leighton Orient and and extremely positive gesture and something that most fans would hope other fans would do for their club if they're ever in a situation like that. And I think moving forward, it's those types of gestures that would mean more than a simple Carabao Cup game. That being said, (laughs) I think those Carabao Cup games do still have a sense of importance for club's like Leighton Orient who would have wanted to play that game and then if of course if they would have been able to and then have the chance to play against the bigger sides you see that in yes the League Cup but also the FA Cup more often I think the biggest example in the League Cup recently has probably been Bradford City getting to the final against Swansea in 2013 and those are moments where Yes, it's kind of like wow that happened, and it's something for these clubs to look to to aspire to, and have uh, a real kind of have real evidence that they can on any given day beat any other club. And I think that's something. Oh, oh, sorry.
1: Did Did Wigan beat what year was it that Wigan beat Man City? Uh,
3: That was 2013 in the FA Cup.
1: The FA Cup. I remember the only time I was more shocked was when I found out that Sven Orin Eriksson was dating Ulrika Johnson.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Dear old Sven. Yeah. uh, (laughs) The the final point I I was going to make on that is I think that's something that is probably quite unique to English football as well. The fact that teams across four divisions can have a, a real chance to meet each other and try to do their best to beat each other as well. So that's the final little point I was going to say on that. <laughs> mm,
2: mm. I suppose, Darren, what we're looking at here is the viability of a of, of the pyramid that we've all grown up with. I know that's a massive issue and probably we haven't got enough time to talk about it in too much depth, but are we now at the stage where English football has to work out for itself, where it wants to go.
1: Yes, in a word. I I think Olly Holt's column... Yesterday, Sunday, in the Mail on Sunday, required reading because he makes the point that English football is only as strong as its weakest link. And he says, it's all very well to turn around and say, why should we help the clubs? Why should Premier League clubs help the clubs at the lower end when basically they want to be us? You know, every smaller club wants to be a Burnley in the Premier League operating on limited resources, but managing to hold its place in the top division and avail itself of the riches of the top division. But... I As Art points out, the solidarity of supporters it, it, it show underscores the point that football is all of us. You know, it pays your wages, my wages, it, it, it the wages of people on radio, on TV, in print media. Football is all of us. We are all in this together. And that's what Ollie says in what is a brilliant, brilliant piece to cut through all of this division, them, this them and us that exists over whether... It should not even be a debate as to whether the big clubs should help the smaller clubs. And he makes his central point, guys. He says this, what is really naive rather than the idea that we're all in this together, is the is the idea that clubs can go and spend 30, 40, 50 million pounds, even talk about 100 million pounds on a Jadon Sancho, and then go to the government with a straight face and say they haven't got enough money to bail out the clubs in the lower divisions. And I think he's absolutely right. And then he puts forward the point... A suggestion, You know, why not have a tax on transfers like they did in the Super League in China? You know, suddenly people stop <laughs> pillaging players in the Premier League over there. But if you have a tax and that money goes into a central fund and then if clubs find themselves in trouble, you can use that money to support those clubs. There are ways and means of being able to support clubs in the lower reaches of, the pyramid, of English football's pyramid. But if we don't, we are going to find that we don't have a game to enjoy because we don't have the players that can progress from the lower leagues up to the top division. And we don't have the communities because they will be wrecked. Those local economies will be wrecked. You know, there are all sorts of elements of this that people don't consider. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece by Oli Holt. Required reading for me.
3: One other thing I wanted to mention on that kind of subject is Premier League clubs don't really find it an issue when they need their young players to... Get minutes, so they send, so they send them to League One, League Two, Championship clubs, and that's something as well that I think probably needed to be highlighted really quickly. In that, just because without those clubs, <laughs> you may not get players like Harry Maguire at Manchester United and many more that are in the Premier League today. So. That's just something that popped in my head and I thought I might mention.
2: No, no, it's a good, really good point. I just want to finish with you uh, on just, I think it would be remiss of us not to look at um, you know, the women's game. And you know we've got two women's FA Cup finals, uh, sorry, semi-finals um, late this week. Birmingham are playing Everton, who beat Chelsea at the weekend in the first semi-final on Wednesday. Then Thursday, you've got Manchester City and Arsenal. You know, you've been speaking to Joe Montemurro, uh, the Arsenal manager. Give us a flavour of the task facing Arsenal in that game, and the way that the women's game is probably changing. You know, there's been a bit of an arms race with players coming in from the states, hasn't there? Where are Arsenal placed in all that?
3: So, I tackle where Arsenal placed in all the transfer stuff first. I think what was key for them, rather than trying to attract all the big names was sorting out the specific needs their squad had so a lot of that came with tactical flexibility for Joe Montemore so that came with the uh, signing of uh, Noel Maritz for instance uh, right back but that then gives the opportunity for Lisa Evans who's a winger by trade who's been playing right back for the past couple of seasons to move further forward. And she actually scored a hat-trick against Tottenham in that in that quarterfinal for Arsenal women. And then you've got other players like um, Malin Gutt who comes in to the holding midfield area. So they're not superstar names, but they're players that will help, I guess, funnel the progression for Joe Montemurro and Arsenal. In terms of where the women's game stands with the FA Cup happening. That was something Joe Montemore said was very important message for the FA to send to show that they care about the quality of products that they have to enough to, to actually finish it and bring a completion to it. It, it, despite what has happened in the current climate, I guess you'd call it. So finishing the FA Cup, which I think for most people in England growing up anyway, in the past maybe 20 years, probably more, that was the key game of women's football for most on TV, I'd say, Mm. at the end of the season. And I think that's something that people may have missed out on if the FA Cup wasn't continued. And um, with that does come, (laughs) of course, extra fixtures, but that's why recruitment is so important for these teams and um building their squads is going to play into that in these next couple of weeks with the with such a quick turnaround between the quarterfinals, semifinals semi finals and then the final as well to kind of weave in between the league campaign as well
2: yeah i think well the women's game is developing a pace and you know i think it's a watch this space scenario i'm i'm certainly one of us to to follow the women's game very closely Pulling it all together, Darren, uh, our thoughts for the day. Let's start with you, please, Darren.
1: Uh, my thought for the day is going to continue along the lines of the smaller clubs. Let's not forget them in the midst of this pandemic. The easiest thing in the world to do would be to follow the party line and suggest that the Premier League are already doing what they can while people lose their jobs and their livelihoods uh, and their communities. But I, I think... If, you are to con- if we are to continue to enjoy this sport, then we must not forget the people who are struggling and we must throw them a lifeline and to make sure that they can grab hold of it.
3: Yeah, well said. Art? For me, I think the way the social media landscape has changed the expectations of football fans is something that probably needs to be highlighted a bit more often, not just by other people, but maybe myself as well. But with that, I think it's something that most people are seeing, but just maybe brush it aside, and maybe it's something that we shouldn't be brushing aside and should be paying more attention to in the in in the future. Yeah,
2: well, I'm going to end with a heartfelt message. It's directed at Marcus Rashford. Nice goal at Brighton. But please, Marcus, whatever you do, don't stick to football. (laughs) You're a compelling voice, a credit to your family. You understand the power of your platform and you've got a rare grasp of humanity. Now, the politicians might try to patronise you. The trolls will definitely try to torment you. But you've got right on your side. And I've never known a sportsman make such a huge social impact. Your fair share campaign is distributing more than four and a quarter million meals to the vulnerable. What does that mean? Well, it's to your credit, Marcus, that you sum it up vividly and unforgettably. I want to share what you said on Friday. I sat and listened while the mum of three, who's worked her entire life, sobbed her heart out to me today. She's lost her job during COVID and has no idea how she's gonna feed her children. She might not feel she has a voice, but I do. This is unacceptable in 2020. Now, thanks to Darren and our, and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers. But thanks most of all to Marcus Rashford. He's a hero.